good morning. My name is Star George. I'm one of the pastors here at our congregation. And if this is your first time visiting with us, welcome. We are really so glad that you could join us this morning. If you are just joining us, uh, we are going through a sermon series on the book of Exodus. We've been looking at what it means to be God's people and what it means to follow the Christian God from the very earliest pages of the Bible. And if you're not familiar with this book, here's a brief summary of where we've covered and what we've been doing so far. We've learned that God's people, the Israelites, are being oppressed and enslaved by Pharaoh and his people in Egypt. And they have cried out to God for deliverance, and God has heard them. God raises up a man named Moses to speak to Pharaoh and the people on God's behalf. The message Moses gets is to let God's people go. But if you know the story, or indeed if you've watched The Prince of Egypt, (laughs) you'll know that Pharaoh stubbornly refuses. He will not let God's people go from slavery. And so in chapter 7 to 10, just before our passage, God decides to act. He begins showing his power over Egypt through a variety of miraculous signs. The Nile turns to blood. Swarms of frogs, gnats, flies, and locusts come upon the land. Disease comes upon the people and livestock. Hail and fire falls from the sky. And darkness comes over the whole land of Egypt. You see, God has been warning the nation time and again, and he has patiently showed his power over Pharaoh through various signs. And yet Pharaoh has refused to listen. And so God determines to show his power through one final sign. And it's this sign that we are going to read about this morning. And so if you have your bulletins, you can flip to the very back where our scripture reading is found. And I'd ask you to give your attention to the reading of God's word. The reading is from Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire without, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Will. What a passage for uh, first thing in daylight savings morning. Picture this. The year is 33 AD, and Jesus of Nazareth arrives in the city of Jerusalem. He's the subject of no small controversy. The man has been preaching to the crowds, healing the sick, and challenging the religious elite. He's been teaching things about the kingdom of God, casting out demons, and even raising the dead. Many consider him to be a good teacher. Some believe him to be a prophet while others even dare to call him the son of God. Opinions, you understand, are divided. And yet for all his many oddities, this man is a Jew. And like other committed Jews, he has come to the city to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. That night they celebrate and eat together. And yet there's a distinct somberness in the room. For halfway through this Passover meal, this same Jesus stands up. He takes bread and breaks it. And he says to them, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And he takes a cup of wine and offers it to them also. He says to them, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples are, of course, confused. They eat and drink at his request, but it's clear that they don't fully understand what has just taken place. Nothing they have learned about the Passover throughout all their generations could have prepared them for what is about to happen next. You know, wherever you are on your journey of faith this morning, I think there's something about this Passover meal that inspires 
curiosity, and reflection. If you're here today and you want to know what it truly means to become a Christian and trust in the Lord of the Bible, you need look no further than this passage here and this meal. And if you are a Christian and you want to know how to truly mature in the faith, I think this passage would invite you to savor the gospel, maybe more fully and more deeply than you have in some time. This has been my experience. Because the question posed by our scripture today is effectively this. What's it going to take for God's people to finally be saved? And in response to that question, this meal provides us with two answers. And they are these. First, that there's a lamb who must come to die. And second, that there's a Lord who must come to judge. There's a lamb who must come to die, and there's a Lord who must come to judge. We'll look at each of these in our passage together. Well, as previously mentioned, God is about to enact one final sign in the land of Egypt. Through it, God is going to save his people from their slavery. Look with me at the text. God speaks to Moses and his brother in verse 1. He says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. What's happening here? Well, scholars note that it was common for ancient cultures to build their nation's calendar around certain historical, cultural, and political events. Calendars in the ancient world were no small thing. They were typically built around such things like the seasons of harvest or rain, pivotal battles that took place, or even significant political events in a nation's history. You see, they indicate what a nation believed was crucial to its existence and essential to its very identity. It's really, really important. So you'll understand that when God commissions these people to remake their yearly calendar on the basis of what he is about to do, he's making a rather significant declaration. There's a salvation event that is about to take place that is meant to impact everything about the way these people live. This day is going to be for them as it will one day come to be for us, a very real and new beginning in human history. God is promising redemption, freedom, and new life to his people that is going to be made possible through the blood of a lamb. And that is the central message at the heart of this text. Look with me at our passage. In verses three to six, God instructs the people about how they are to remember this day. They are to prepare for it diligently. We're told that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, that's a little odd. I grant you that. But it gets even better, doesn't it? (laughs) Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. I mean, wow. What a bizarre festival. Not only are they slaughtering little lambs, but they're also painting their houses with the blood. I mean, if you're here and exploring the Christian faith, I would imagine that you might find this to be pretty strange and quite disturbing. You might be wondering what kind of God demands such a bloody display of religious devotion. I mean, this sounds almost cult-like and fanatical, doesn't it? How can this be acceptable? How can a God like this be worthy of my devotion? And that's a great question. And to that, I wanna say three things to contextualize our reading. First, you should know that blood and slaughter was a normal and acceptable part of living in the ancient world. But it isn't for us. Meal preparation for you and I is clean, proper, and dignified. But that's simply because somebody else did the dirty work on your behalf. I grant you that what you see here might bother you. But you should know that this is just a normal part of living in the ancient world. Secondly, as bloody and grotesque as this scene might appear to be, you should know that these people actually held a great deal of respect and reverence for blood and death, which is ironically quite unlike our culture. Their behavior may strike you as being appalling, but I think if they were alive today, they would probably find us and our behavior to be equally appalling. This past week, we celebrated a festival about death. I walked through my neighborhood where doorways were actually smeared red with fake blood, and human limbs were littered all over garden beds. I saw bodies, skulls, and instruments of torture bandied about as Halloween decorations for people's homes. So let's be honest as a culture. Whether in our decor, movies, or entertainment, we have glorified blood, death, and gore in ways that would probably have appalled previous generations before us, right? So maybe, just maybe, it would be fair to grant the God and people of this text some charity in this matter. You follow me? Because third, and maybe most importantly, I want to say this. The Bible teaches us that human sin has a cost, and that cost is paid for in blood. Romans 6.23 says this, that the wages of sin is death. By that, the Bible means that all people, all people, whether religious or irreligious, have sinned. And as such, all people stand condemned before God, justly deserving his displeasure and punishment for their sin. What we deserve is death, physically and spiritually. And that means judgment and eternal separation from God forever. That is the problem of sin, biblically speaking. And in order for human beings to be in right relationship with God and to be spared or passed over from this judgment, the Bible teaches us that what we desperately need is for someone or something to die on our behalf. We need the blood of an innocent victim to be shed in our place. And that's what this passage aims to show us. 
Now, admittedly, the Israelites don't fully understand that just yet, but God explains this to them more fully after they've left Egypt. In Leviticus 17, for example, God teaches his people about the need for atonement through the blood of a lamb. Listen to what he says. God says to them, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. It's in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You see, what God is essentially teaching him is that he has provided a way for people to be saved and to have a relationship with him. Namely, because he has provided a way for people to be forgiven of their sins. It is expressly by faith in him through the blood of an innocent lamb. This, according to the Old Testament, is what allows sinners like you and me to stand before a holy God. And that matters profoundly to these people because God is now coming down to visit Egypt. Verse 12, he has sent his servant Moses and many accompanying signs as a warning over and over and over upon this land. And now he's rolling up his sleeves and coming down himself. The focus you understand, and it's no longer about how these people can be safe from Pharaoh. No. I want you to see from this text that that's not even on the radar anymore. Rather, the entire focus of this passage is pivoted to a radical fear of this unstoppable God. The primary question that concerns these people right now is this. If the holy and righteous God of the universe were to actually come down to judge the land, how can anyone possibly be safe? You see, they understand that unprotected and unsheltered humanity cannot stand in the presence of a holy judge. That is, unless God were to provide something to shield them. And that's precisely what you see happening in this text. Look with me again at verse five. God instructs the people that they are to take a lamb that is without blemish, a male, a year old. It sounds kind of cryptic, but in Old Testament language, that means that this lamb is to be absolutely spotless, spotless. It is to be the very best from the flock without any discoloration, ailments, or injuries. Why is that? Why is that? Well, God explains them to them later. It's because the lamb's perfect form and appearance is meant to represent something of the perfect moral purity that God requires of his people. The lamb must be perfect because its role is to make atonement for an imperfect people. Do you follow me? And so God instructs the people that they should take a lamb from the flock on the 10th day. The lamb is to physically leave its place with the flock and effectively become part of this Israelite household. For three days, the people are to keep the lamb and care for it as a household until the 14th day when they are to put it to death. And then they are to paint the doorposts and lintels of their home with the blood of this Passover lamb. We learn later on why God asked them to do this. He tells them in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will fall on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, the blood on the door is meant to be a sign of their faith in this God. It is a sign to the people that their guilt has been pardoned on the basis of a bloodied lamb. And then they are to roast this lamb and eat it as an act of faith, fully trusting in the salvation that God has promised to them. In fact, so holy and special is this lamb that it cannot be used for any other purpose. Anything that is left over must be burned because this meal consecrates those who eat of it. It is a meal for those who trust in the Lord for their deliverance. In fact, such is their trust that God actually commands them to eat this meal fully dressed to go out. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste because it is the Lord's Passover. The implication you understand is enormous. They are eating in faith with a certain readiness and anticipation to leave Egypt behind in the dust. Men and women, I don't think you fully appreciate this fact. There are several generations of people who have grown up in Egypt and have only ever known slavery. They were born into slavery and they cannot even fathom what life might look like otherwise. They've heard the word of God to them and they've clung to his many promises. They've seen Moses and they know God is with him. They've seen nine different signs in the land of Egypt, nine signs. And yet none of these things has resulted in their freedom whatsoever. I mean, if you're an Israelite stuck in slavery right now, you're feeling pretty low at this point, pretty low. A lot has seemed to happen, and yet nothing about their present situation has changed at all. And now, all of a sudden, you're asked to prepare and eat a last supper and dress for travel. Because this is it, ladies and gentlemen. God is saying, get ready. Get ready. I am about to set you free. This feast is going to commemorate your deliverance throughout all your generations. Remember this day, for it is the Lord's Passover. You need to understand that this meal foreshadowed an incredible deliverance to come. It anticipated deliverance from a physical slavery, yes, but that's not what I'm talking about. I want you to see from this text that these people are commanded to continue celebrating the Passover throughout their generations, long after they've been freed. God commands them in verse 14, this day, this day shall be for you Memorial Day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because the true nature and extent of their slavery had yet to be revealed. You see, the Bible teaches us that there's a kind of slavery that affects every person that goes deeper than that of Egypt. 
The truth is that just like these early Israelites, you and I and every person who has ever lived suffers from a slavery that we were born into. It is a slavery to sin. And God's people desperately need this same deliverance. We need freedom of a spiritual kind. Do you understand? The reason why these people are asked to continue celebrating the Passover is because this meal ultimately points them to a much greater human need. You and I need spiritual deliverance from our slavery to sin. What we need is a better lamb. We need a better lamb. Men and women, I want to tell you that this story, this beautiful story, is an early picture of the gospel. For where else in the Bible do you find a lamb that leaves its place and comes to dwell with the people of God? It's in the gospels. You see, 1,400 years after this Passover event, God gave his people another lamb. In John chapter one, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for God's promised Messiah. He's preaching to God's people about redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And he sees Jesus, the son of God, approaching him in the flesh. And he immediately cries out, behold, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, he understood what Jesus was about to do on behalf of his people. Namely, that he had come to give his life as a perfect sacrifice so that we might be passed over. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus was a better lamb. He was without blemish, stain, or sin. He lived the perfect life of obedience to God that you and I could never live. And then he went to the cross to die the death that we deserved. He bore the punishment for our disobedience and he endured the full anger and wrath that God had against sin. The Apostle Peter writing to the early church says this, that we were ransomed. We were ransomed. Not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, this Passover meal in our passage foreshadows a better future day of redemption. The Bible tells us that it is now by faith in this Jesus and on the basis of his blood that you and I can be truly passed over. He is the lamb who has come to die. And this is our first point. Secondly, Moses also tells us here that there is a Lord who must come to judge. God speaks to Moses in verse 12. Listen to what he says. He writes, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You see, God is coming to judge the land of Egypt. It is the means by which God's people are going to be delivered. And what's interesting about this passage is what God puts forward as the reason for why he is doing all of what he's doing, everything, including saving and judging. The point, you see, is summarized by this one sentence in verse 12. I am the Lord. 
And let me tell you why that's important. God is on a mission to save his people. We know that already. But as we've been learning over the last several weeks, there is a broader context to his mission that stretches from the book of Genesis. And it is this, that God is on a mission to reveal himself to the nations and show them that there's no God but him. Why? It's because as we've been seeing, everyone needs saving from sin, including these Egyptians. And make no mistake, God cares about them. God cares about them. I think we forget that often. We treat the God of the Old Testament like this God who is only out for Israel and against everybody else. Men and women, I need to tell you that he is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of the cosmos. And his desire is that people from every nation should turn from their sins and come to put their faith in him. Do you understand what it is that I'm saying to you? Because it's only when you start to read this book in light of that context that you will begin to realize that the signs God works in the land of Egypt are not the work of some angry, vengeful God. These signs are meant to show every person who lives in the land of Egypt that there's no other God who saves. And that really matters because Egypt currently doesn't acknowledge this God. They don't. They don't believe he's powerful and they don't believe he can save. And there's a reason for that. You see, in ancient times, there was a strong belief in territorial deities. Conflicts that happened between nations were often seen as battles of supremacy between one nation's God and another. And so if you were able to destroy another nation in battle, it was basically accepted that your God, your God must surely be better and stronger and more powerful than their God. And if you were able to subjugate another people and enslave them, kill them, and rule over them with extreme cruelty, it effectively meant that their God was less than nothing. It would have signaled to any person alive at this time that the God of Israel either doesn't care about his people or isn't strong enough to save them, or worse, he doesn't even exist. I mean, you start to see why God takes such issue with this kind of thinking. And you even start to see why Pharaoh and his people have such difficulty acknowledging the Lord. In fact, the very first time Pharaoh is asked to release God's people from slavery, what does he say? He replies, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Do you see what's happening here? And so what begins to happen is that God sends signs, warnings, and judgments upon the land that are meant to reveal who he is. These signs, you understand, are meant to teach all the people, Egyptian and Israelite alike, that there is only one God. And that becomes abundantly clear when you begin to look closely at some of these signs that God sends upon this land. 
Every sign that God works in this land is a direct assault on the idol worship of Moses' day. Let me show you. The Egyptians believed that the god Hopi, who is the god of the Nile, and so God poetically spills his blood all over the place. The river turns to blood. The Egyptians believed in Hecate, the goddess of fertility. Hecate was commonly depicted with the head of the frog. And so in ironic fashion, God sends swarms of frog to ravage this fertile land. Geb was a god who ruled over the dust of the earth. So God tells Moses to strike the dust and it becomes a plague of gnats. The people are to see it and understand that Geb, he's absolutely powerless. Hathor was the goddess of protection. She was commonly depicted with the head of a cow. And so God sends a plague over all the Egyptian livestock. The point you understand is clear. She can do nothing to protect them. Isis was the goddess of health, so God sends boils to come upon the people. Newt was the goddess of the sky, so God rains down hail, thunder, and fire upon the land. Nepper was the god of grain, so God sends locusts to ravage his fields. Ra was the god of the sun, so God sends three days of darkness upon this land. I mean, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. Everything about God's signs are intentionally designed to subvert the false worship of this day. He is patiently showing all people that these paltry gods that they worship are not real at all. They cannot save. When you finally get to the last sign in our passage, God is forced to confront one last major god in Egypt. And that is Pharaoh himself. Scholars note that in the religious worship and life of Egypt, Pharaoh was considered like one of the gods. He was a god unto himself, because you see, he had an idol of self. His father before him was worshiped, and his grandfather before that. And you see, one day his son would be worshiped, and his grandson after that. And so God determines that he will strike at the very heart of this worship structure. Verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not Grace Strano, this is a sad and terrible day that comes upon the land of Egypt. Devastating death and judgment comes upon the people because they have refused and rejected God over and over and over again. And it's here I think that the Bible leaves us with a rather uncomfortable truth. And it is this. If you cannot acknowledge this Lord, as being the only true God who saves, then you are right now standing in the path of judgment because of your sin. Because you see, in the same way that this story foreshadows an incredible deliverance through Jesus the Lamb, 
It also foreshadows a terrible judgment for those who do not put their faith and trust in him. Men and women, I need to tell you that there is no hope of salvation outside of these blood-stained doors unless the blood of Jesus shelters you by faith. Listen, you will not be spared in the judgment to come. And that would be a sad and terrible thing. But if you heed this word, if you heed this word and put your faith in this God, fully trusting in the blood of this lamb, listen, you can and will be passed over. How do I know that to be the case? It's this. Because at the cross, God already enacted this terrible plague in the most painfully poetic way. God struck down his own firstborn. And he did it in love so that you and I might be passed over. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church and considering these great events of the cross, says this in 1 Corinthians 5. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It is his blood that saves us and gives us this certain confidence. If you're here this morning and exploring the Christian faith, I need to tell you as a pastor that there's a day coming when this same Lord will return. And you will on that day have to face the consequences of your sin. As this passage shows us, I think it's true that you can worship every imaginable God known to religion. You can even worship the secular gods of power, comfort, pleasure, and wealth. Like Pharaoh, you can even worship an idol of self. But the point of this passage is clear, that these things cannot and will not save you in the day of judgment. They are rubbish. They are rubbish. What you need, my friend, is to find shelter in the blood of this lamb. Just like my brother Charles did this morning. Trust in this God. Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus for salvation. I pray that you would take that to heart. For the Christian here, I think this text gives you some application also. I want to give you three ways to respond to what you've heard today. First, trust firmly in the Lamb. Christian, you know that there is no salvation apart from the blood of Jesus, and you must never, ever wander away from this truth. In this world, and even in the church, you will be tempted to put your faith in other things, things like your own personal holiness, your spiritual disciplines, or indeed even in your own gospel performance. This text reminds you that there's only one thing that saves, and that is the blood of Jesus. So you keep trusting in him, but resolve to trust in him alone. Second, commemorate your redemption. Commemorate it. 
This passage invites all the redeemed to orient their calendar, their schedules, and indeed their entire lives around the reality of what was achieved at the cross. God says to you today, this day was for you a new beginning. What Christ has done for you in his debt should make a discernible difference in the way you now live. So ask yourself, is the way that I'm currently living demonstrating that God is first and foremost in my heart? Am I allowing the finished work of Jesus to transform every aspect of my life? Or are there areas of my life where I'm still functionally living in slavery? I'd ask you to think about that and be diligent to obey. Third and finally, become a sign to the world. Become a sign to the world. I want to tell you that as a follower of Jesus, you bear the blood of the Lamb, just like these early believers. The doorposts of their houses testified to their unbelieving neighbors that they put their faith squarely in the God who saves. Their faith was active, observable, and unashamed before a culture that regarded them with hostility and skepticism. And your faith, Christian, is meant to be the same. As your unbelieving neighbors see you and your household take shelter in the blood of Jesus, it is meant to be a warning and encouragement to them that they should do the same. So you be a visible sign. You practice and proclaim the faith prayerfully and without shame. Let the watching world see that they too have need of this lamb. Because at the end of this passage, we see that God's people are finally delivered, aren't they? They get to leave Egypt because they are no longer in the service of Pharaoh, but they are now in the service of God, verse 31. And so, Grace Rono, you likewise have now been called and set apart to serve this God. So may the Lord grant you grace and strength to do that as you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of the Passover, which is an early picture of the gospel. We thank you that you sent to us Jesus, your only son, your firstborn, who became for us the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I ask that that message would sink down deep into our souls, that it would transform us and convict us of our sin and birth in us new affections and devotions for you, so we may serve you and honor you and love you and obey you with all of our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, ordinarily in our service, we have some time for questions, but because of the nature of our service and some of the announcements and the testimony, um, we, we don't have that opportunity today. But if you do email me, uh, tarek at gracetron.ca, I'd love to interact with you. I'll also be available afterwards, and I'd love to speak with you and, and chat with you. Uh, we're gonna take a moment now to respond in a song of response. <clears throat>